Hey everybody, Mike Nelson here, or Michael J, whatever you prefer. I have no... <laughs> you have no preference, Mike? Old J? I don't really have a preference. And my mother-in-law, I think the day I met her, she said, what should I call you? And I said, you know what? And it was just at that moment, I said, I like Michael. And so she calls me Michael, but no one else on earth calls me Michael. But although I do, it's nice. It's oh, nice. It's like anyway, I, this is. Yes. It's this is. I call you Mike. I, I refer to you as Mike. Yeah, pretty much everyone calls me Mike. But it's a weird thing where I used to be. I had a phone job, and and we'll tell you what podcast this is and what's happening in just yes, a moment. Yes, but, but I'm more, more interested important. in this than introducing my own podcast. So please. Tell I the story. was a. I don't know if I ever said this. I used to be a debt collector. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that? I, you have told me this, but I don't know if you've said it on the podcast. I've had a thousand lives. People always go, how old are you? I'm very old, but I'm not that old, but I've just had a lot of jobs. And one of them was as a, uh, a debt collector at a, uh, a law firm. And I would call people up and to, just to be more official and sound like, because I was from the law firm of blah, 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 and blah, 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 I would say, this is Michael J. Nelson from the law firm of... And uh, and so that became a habit. And then I would call my friends and would say, hey, Michael J. here. And they go, who is this? What? <laughs> so, so then they got used to it. It's like, okay, so that you have several names then because it's Mike or it's – you're calling were yourself you a Michael good, how J. How were you I, – I don't want to you know, dilly-dally, but how good were you at collecting debts, Mike? I was not very good. I was not good because – the, the, by the time it got to the stage of collection that I was doing, the people had – they had been through everything that was going to happen to them, and they no longer cared. Yeah. So you know what I mean? Like we would call people, and they go like, hey, tough luck, sucker. I moved to Florida where the laws are laxer just so I wouldn't have to pay you. I'd be like, you moved for <laughs> so that you wouldn't pay your $2,000? Okay, I or you win. I guess. I, yeah. All right, Michael. Uh, then, who, uh, who, who, oh, no, no, tell, no, no. I don't want to cut you off. Please continue. No, no. It's uh, what? What question? I have many answers to all questions about uh, debt collection and credit card debt back in the uh, late nineteen well, eighties. Let's not. Let's save some of those for a future. Let's let's kind of you know okay, dole those out good. in small doses. Right. Who are we? What are we doing? Yes. Uh, okay. So. All that aside, this is uh, Like Trees Walking. We are a podcast where we talk about the big issues of life. And um, there are a lot of issues right now. Dave, so, have you so. noticed that? Oh, I've seen. Yep. You've got your shoes. I've got my shoes. We've got issues going on. <laughs> uh, that is uh, Pastor Dave Berge. I am Michael J. Nelson. We host a podcast where we talk about those issues and uh, we do it from a Christian perspective, but we welcome all points of view and all comers and today we bring another perspective to it and why don't you introduce that perspective pastor that's right and and we call the podcast like trees walking um for reasons that we explain very early on in the podcast um but it's a scriptural reference but today um you know we're in the midst of a uh, pandemic very early on um but uh when i thought you know and for me as a as a pastor um this has kind of dramatically changed the nature of my work and how i do it and what i'm doing every single week um I mean, just radically shifted it. And so when I think about how to adapt to changing circumstances as a Christian and a leader, 
I thought of no other person than Todd Balsinger, who is someone who I got to know in the um, early early 2010s, um, who has done a lot of thinking and writing on this. He was, at the time, he was pastor at San Clemente Presbyterian Church out in lovely San Clemente, California. Nicest McDonald's I've ever been to was in San Clemente, California. I never made it to the McDonald's there. I like oh, San Clemente. It's got a tile roof. It's beautiful. But um, and, and now Todd works um, in theological education at Fuller Seminary, um, which is one of the most... Uh, important and influential seminaries in in um, in the world, certainly in the United States of America, which is in Pasadena. And so Todd is just the man is just a wealth of knowledge about this, and he um, connects you know change in the church to the Lewis and Clark expedition, which I am a history buff. I know Mike is too, and so we like that geek out on that stuff as well. And so Todd is well versed in in the church, in leadership, in change, in kind of leading off the map and the Lewis and Clark expedition, which makes it just a joy to um, to learn from him. And so, uh, you know, we came and sat at his uh, proverbial feet and learned from him and had a really interesting conversation with him that we want to share with you that we think will be helpful as you think about, hey, how do I live um, in these times where uh, things are not going now how I, I thought they would? Right. And um, there's, a, there's a little... Uh sonic issue as as always with these things yeah it's always a challenge now that we're living in the new uh I, i'm not going to say the brand name of the <laughs> the um, communication um, device that we use <laughs> yes because we use different ones but uh there was a little issue so you hear a little edit in the middle it's not i don't think it'll be no nope. i don't think it will trouble you some may not even notice it that's right mike with well, it's you be the judge of michael j nelson's splicing and dicing skills surgical surgical you are a surgeon an audio surgeon so thanks everyone for listening i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as mike and i did and um yeah we will be back at you with more like trees walking very soon and and buy his book oh yeah canoeing over mountains buy it yeah Yeah. all right you're not getting the the whole you're not getting the whole you're not getting the milk for free folks buy the cow that's right (laughs) all right so uh here's the interview and uh you know pastor dave and i will be back Probably sooner rather than later. I would say uh, so. You know, yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Light Trees Walking. Uh, Dave Berge and Mike Nelson here. And we have the very special and distinct honor and privilege today of speaking with uh, Todd Balsinger. And uh, Todd is the Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation at Fuller Theological Seminary in sunny Pasadena, California, uh, home of the Rose Bowl. Um, which uh, those of us from Minnesota know that the Gophers last played in it in 1961. <laughs> and so we are... Some of I, us from Minnesota know that. <laughs> <laughs> My father is, is ha- always happy to remind me. That's like, it used to be like sev- one of his passwords to like log in was 1961. And it was, that was the last time the Gophers were in the Rose Bowl. So, uh, you know, um, so, <laughs> and if the UCLA Bruins didn't actually play there, they would never get to be in the Rose Bowl either. So, um you know, but uh, Todd, so um, when, you know, and we're doing a few very special episodes uh, given um, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're dealing with, but uh, Todd is someone who I became aware of um, in the early 2010s around um, areas of adaptive change and adaptive leadership. What does that mean? Well, that's why we have Todd here to tell us what that is. But just in terms of thinking um, when, when, when the church, Todd was speaking into the church specifically 
what does the church do when faced with a, a, a new set of challenges that it has no idea sort of how to answer them or, or how to respond or what to do? That you know that the, 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 the future is not going to be sa- the same as the past, but you're not exactly sure um, how to live into that future. What got you to where you are isn't going to get you to where you need to go next. And so uh, when, when I found myself leading a church, a congregation, um, in the midst of like a rapidly unfolding situation where everything it seemed like was being changed uh, and called into question. And we, we just cannot operate the way that we did before for, you know, uh, who knows how long I thought, man, I really want to talk to Todd and see what he has to say about this. And I think it's going to be helpful for our audience um, because we're all in a situation right now where um, our lives are not the same. It doesn't seem like, um, you know, our country, or our culture are going to be the same. And so how can we think about that from a Christian perspective, but more broadly, how can we think about um, what it means to live into this, into this future that we, that is not going to be the same as the past. And so Todd um, wrote a book called Canoeing Over Mountains. Um, I forget the subtitle, <laughs> Todd will remind us of it when he, when he says, but it is a really um, wonderful book about, uh, about, about adaptive leadership and adaptive change and connecting it to the Lewis and Clark um, expedition of 1802-1803, right? I think when that, but that's when that was roughly. And so, you know, they're, they're com- being commissioned by Thomas Jefferson. Go, you know, find a, go find us a route out to the Pacific Ocean and, and how they had to basically adapt to the circumstances as they found them. So Todd, that's my long-winded introduction of you. <laughs> Uh, but please, uh, please just enlighten us with, I mean, I said things like adaptive change, adaptive leadership, Lewis mm-hmm. and Clark. Could you just please spell it out for the people? Yeah, glad to, glad to. Nice to be with you guys on this. Um, so, um, yeah, so I wrote this book called Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. And it's a book that I use the metaphor of Lewis and Clark. Um, they were sent by Thomas Jefferson to find a water route that would connect the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. And it was a water route that everybody knew was there. They just knew it. They'd been looking for it for 300 years. There had even been maps drawn that showed um, the way the Missouri River that comes off the Mississippi and the Columbia River that comes off the Pacific Ocean would kind of come together, but nobody found the middle connecting point. And if they could find that middle connecting point and they could claim that whole water route from the Pacific Ocean through the Columbia River to the Missouri River to the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, what they would have is an economic um, advantage over every other nation in Europe, most of whom wanted to invade them. So if you think about this as the 1800s, the War of 1812 was coming. France, Spain, and England were all trying to find the same water route because it was easier to send raw material over water than over land. So it was an economic uh, venture. Uh, Meriwether Lewis in 1805 walks up to the top of a mountain range on the border of Idaho and Montana. He looks over the range thinking he'll see a little stream on the other side that he just can't come out of on one side. They take their canoes after going 18 months upstream. They would now get to put their canoes in a new stream going 18 months. It would go downstream and they would claim the water route. And what they found, of course, was the Rocky Mountains. And so what you have is a, is a metaphor about how the entire understanding of the map of the world had been wrong at that moment. The assumption was that everything in the future would be an extension of everything in the past. And so anytime an organization finds itself in a place where it is completely disrupted, it needs a different kind of leadership than it used in the past. It might have been able to use expert leadership or what's called technical leadership. 
Um, they were expert water navigators that all of a sudden, if you have an entire crew of people who are so good at running rapids and rowing um, through rivers, who all of a sudden now have to become mountain climbers, you have a group of folks who at this moment have to learn as they go. And so adaptive leadership that was started by some folks out of Harvard, one of them named Ronald Heifetz, was this whole notion of what does it take when your leadership moment takes you into a place where you have no uh, expertise. Your, your past expertise will not help you anymore, but instead you are still responsible for leading. And so all of a sudden you are now in a completely changing world. And the moment that you have to stand in front of your group of people and say, we have got to keep going, we got a mission to accomplish, but I do not know what the next step is. You are now in adaptive leadership territory. Okay. So, and now obviously this is at the front of everyone's mind right now, but as you reflected on what that meant for the church, you know, you were doing um, a lot of your thinking and writing around this around, you know, more around the turn of the century and the early years of the 21st century. How did you see that playing out in the church at that time? You know, what was the technical leadership that was needed in the previous era? And what did you see kind of as the shortcomings of that in the emerging area era of 21st century Christianity? Yeah, so for basically from around 2007 to 2015, when I wrote the book and when I was doing some work in our denomination and work in my own congregation as a pastor, the giant challenge in front of us, the external challenge, the changing environment, was the challenge of what we call the move from a Christendom culture. That's a culture where the church has privilege and place and is at the center of the culture, where everybody assumes that church and church... Um, communities are really important to the thriving of the culture. And so I used to say that, you know, if you think about this, that almost every small town in America was, was seemed like it was laid out by the same city planner. There'd be a library and a courthouse and the first church, whoever got there first, first mm -hmm. Methodist, first Presbyterians, first Lutheran, and all the other first churches are all on second street because everybody <laughs> assumed that a healthy society needed law, education, and religion and even people who weren't Christians thought that at least in our culture, that should be a Christian religion most of the time. So what's changed dramatically is that. Um, it, it, what's changed is no longer is the church at the center of society. The church is now in what's called a post-Christendom world where we are now more on the margins of society or we are fighting to get back to the center of society. And the question to ask, ask ourselves is what does the mission of God require of us in um, relationship to society. And what it allows us to be is think much more like missionaries. The mission field is no longer about sending money over seawater or sending people into uh, other countries. It's literally stepping outside your door, your sanctuary door, crossing your sidewalk. Sometimes it's at your family dinner table with your own kids who grew up in your own house. And you start realizing that we live now in a different world with different assumptions and it requires churches to have to adapt. And so that world that we've been in now is on hyperdrive in light of the pandemic because many of the things that we have used as um, kind of standard behaviors and practices of a church are now getting radically reoriented, have been, have been radically reoriented just in the last couple of weeks. And it seems like it's maybe never going to be back the same way it was before. 
And so you're someone who, you know, now you're in, I mean, you're an executive level leadership at a, at a theological seminary. So you've gone from a congregational context to the context of theological education. And so I'm curious how you've, ha- you've seen this play out in both of those different vocations. Has it seemed more pressing at the congregational level or is it more at the level of theological education? Where have these like skills or questions, do you feel like it's been the most sort of urgent, I guess, the conversation. I'm curious in the difference between those two in your experience. Yeah. So here's an interesting thought. I think of congregations as really being the front line, not seminaries. Um, Mm -hmm. Congregation, I mean, um, mean, uh, my son goes to a small church in Seattle. They have been just creamed. You know, they were disrupted before everybody else, right, um, here. His small church congregation is made up of a lot of beautiful older folks. That's why he loves going there. My son's 26, but he loves being in a congregation that's got the wisdom of multiple generations. They have no technology. They don't use any technology. It's an Episcopal church. They use a book of common prayer. What happens when all of a sudden you can't gather? Like to gather could actually threaten the very lives of your people, let alone the people they would touch in, a, in that neighborhood. So immediately what they're having to grapple with uh, before anybody else was thinking about it was that question. That question got to universities and the seminaries quickly within a, within a week or so. But what we realize is, is that the front line is always the congregation. The local challenges of a pastor is always the most pressing thing. And the, those of us in theological education need to be asking ourselves questions about the formation of those leaders and the support and the resourcing of those leaders. And to be honest, we are um, the, the theological education tends to be pretty slow because um, it's that's the thing about that. Seminary education comes out of a monastic tradition, right? People gather in a in a cloistered location for two to three years, and then they are sent. Well, now that's being disrupted tremendously. Our our school was. Com- has gone completely online, which we, are, we already have online education, so that's not a huge disruption. But for a number of our students who moved to be in Pasadena with us or to one of our campuses, this has changed their lives dramatically just in the last couple of weeks. So let's get back to Lewis and Clark. So they, 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 they think they're finding a water passage. They think they're going to be able to canoe and find access to the Pacific Ocean. They run into the Rocky Mountains. Now, obviously, like they were successful in their mission to explore um, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, but like, how, what lessons do they offer for us in the sense of they thought they were going to do one thing, they had to do another. Like, how are they actually able to, to, to pull this off? And like, what can that teach us in, in the church? Yeah, this is, it's actually a, a really great illustration. So um, the first thing to realize is though they were sent on an economic mission, they were sent on an economic mission, their deepest core values were actually much more than economic survival. Um, Meriwether Lewis, Lewis had been tutored by Thomas Jefferson. His deepest values are what I would call enlightenment values. So at that moment, standing on top of the Lemhi Pass, realizing that the 300 years of maps were wrong. Instead of going back and telling Jefferson, hey, you should know there's not a water route. You need a different economic strategy for the country. He knew Jefferson would want him to keep going. How did he know that? He knew that because he and Jefferson shared a set of common core values. And those core values were enlightenment values that believe this. The growth of human knowledge will lead to the growth of human happiness. That was their value. Now, those are different than my values as a Christian. But what they got to was their deepest core values. 
And so what churches need to do at this moment isn't ask, hey, how do we stay alive? It's what is our deepest value? What is the thing that we cannot lose? What is the thing that we cannot change? Maybe we'll give up meeting in, in sanctuaries for a while. Many church Christians all over the world have never had a sanctuary. The early church didn't have sanctuaries. So maybe buildings are not what's the most important thing to us. But maybe there is a way of thinking about what our deepest reason for being that will help us recover that. So that's the first thing. We got to go. What we do is we go back to our core values and we and we start adapting on those deepest core values. And for each that's true for the church generally. But I think it's also true for each individual congregation. Right. A congregation that says, hey, this is what our mission is. We know our mission is to make an impact in our community or in our neighborhood or in these particular groups of folks. So that's what we're going to double down on. So recommitting to your core value. The, the second thing they did is they began to look for experts in this new world. And they had one in their midst. Um, they had only one person who wasn't lost when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass. Um, Neil, Ar- I mean, the, uh, Dayton Duncan said that when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, he knew more about the moon than Lewis and Clark knew about the American West. Neil Armstrong had seen pictures of the moon. When they stepped over the American West, they were totally lost, except for one person named Sakagawea, a Native American teenage nursing mother. In school, you might have heard her name as Sacagawea, yep. but they wrote, her, they wrote her name as Sakagawea in the, in the uh, journal. So I like to give her back her name. And it's a good reminder to us that there are lots of people who have been in this world, say, a world where you don't can't just assume that you can gather a world where you just can't assume that everybody will show up on a Sunday morning there that we can think about discipleship and faith in a totally different way by learning to listen to people who have been more on the margins or who have not, who are been more shaped by the world we're in. And so this is a great opportunity. For example, the number of churches I've seen who have had to go to younger people in their community to ask them about how to use technology. Um, The number of churches who have begun to ask questions about how do we care for people who are shut in? Like if our core value is making sure that all of our people experience the love of Christ and can share the love of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Um, in when we don't have programs anymore, uh, that, that lets us, takes us back to our core value and it teaches us how to adapt. And so those are two pieces right away. you you understand your core value and then learning from uh, a different learning from a collaborative approach to new kinds of expertise and partnership. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, and, and when you kind of stand like in thinking about adaptive leadership or adaptation, I think a lot of people have this profound sense of disorientation or inadequacy. I mean, I think of, you know, the way I was trained as a pastor, you know, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, um, which I think in a lot of ways, you know, in my experience, uh, it, it has, you know, famously or infamously, I guess, depending, you know, at, at the time I was attending had a billion dollar endowment. And when you talk about a school of, you know, 550 or, you know, 600 students, that's a lot of money like per kid to sort of go around. And, and so in some ways we were kind of insulated from the, um, you know, the realities of kind of challenge and scarcity, you know, the fact that your average congregation, your average Presbyterian congregation at that time was probably 50, around 50 people on a, on your average given Sunday. And so you go from kind of a theological education in, in, in the Christendom mindset, or at least in a place where, you know, you have ample resources to a resource scarce environment, um, kind of forces some of these adaptive, um, 
adaptive questions onto your mind right away. But like, so in your mind, if you were to say, Hey, adaptive leadership, it, it starts with, you know, it's obviously starts with, um, uh, uh, connecting with your core values, connecting with the expert. What are like, what do, besides turning to those, what do leaders do in those circumstances? What are the questions they ask? Who do they engage? Like, what do they do? Yeah. So let me give you a three quick points since I'm an old preacher and I, fall yes, my own. yes. I've fallen I, I, back I, in love I, I with fall three into, point yeah. sermons. Yeah. 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 So, it, so here's what I would say. Definitely is a three point guy. I I'm a three point guy. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've hit, I've hit, I've hit more three pointers than Steph Curry. Um, and uh, three points, three points in a poem. That's the old. That's, that's the it. old cliche. Okay, so basically, there's three points: trust, training, and trying stuff. So let me say those three points. In, a, in the, number one, trust. The commodity that every leader needs in an uncertain time is for the people to trust them. We get very. Think about this. The more unfamiliar the setting we're in, the more we look for familiar faces. So if you're traveling overseas or you're in a in a new city, and all of a sudden you run into someone who you had an eighth grade biology from your hometown, you will gravitate toward that person. So more than ever, in a time of radical change, pastors and leaders have got to be present to their people, and they've got to continually develop trust. And trust comes through being competent. Like you do your job, you care for people, you handle the scriptures well, you, you, are, you show up doing the things you're supposed to do. And it also comes from being congruent. You tell the truth, you're caring, you don't try, you don't try to sugarcoat stuff, but you also don't try to be um, tra- traumatic or dramatic about things. Uh, competence and clarity builds trust. Competence and congruence builds trust. And trust becomes the, the big commodity. Without trust, the journey's over. People just stop. The second thing, though, is training. And so one of the famous uh, quotes that uh, somebody said to me once was, um, at a moments of crisis, you don't rise to the occasion. You default to your training. And what happens at these moments of crisis now is we need to be retrained. And what we need is training that will enable us to learn as we go. And so what I say for most congregations, think about this, is what we should be thinking about isn't how do we present lots of, uh, lots of cool things online. It's actually how do we equip our people to live out their faith in their neighborhoods or in their families with the people around them who are in need? Like, let's go back to our basics and be about discipleship and training and retraining people to be the people of God that we've always been. So think about all, I always think that the role of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In this changing day, we're going to do more equipping than we are going to do preaching or even caring for people because we're not going to be able to be with them. So this is, becomes really important. So trust and training. And then the third one is try a lot of stuff. It's got to be okay to experiment. Um, in the last two weeks, almost every church I know has experimented with some kind of technology. And some of them were great and some of them are not so great. And and if you're in a big church that has big, you know, production staffs, doing something on Facebook Live is easy for you. But if you're in a small congregation that has never used technology to all of a sudden try to use technology, it's going to be awkward and hard and feel kind of embarrassing. And what I would say is don't just try technology, try lots of things and try to figure out what works within your community and what brings you back to your core mission so that and that in and it helps you have trust. So you're, the whole point of experiments isn't to ask the question, did it work? The point of an experiment is, so what did we learn? What did we learn together that helps us to keep growing, that helps us to equip our people, and that helps us build trust? So trust, retraining, 
trying lots of stuff. Do you think that uh, this, Mike, uh, do you think, I think it's an opportunity here because I think that there's a lot of just consumer driven, like I'm just sitting in church and I'm just taking it in. And now that's not really, really an opportunity. I guess you can still do that. You can sit and look online, but it seems like this will be a, a prod for people to go, oh, wait a minute, I got to step up. And, and I look at it as a big opportunity for others to go. I, before I would just sit and I'd kneel and stand and do whatever I did at the times that I was told to do it. But now I'm being called up. You know, it's like a, a battlefield commission. Like you, you got to go do stuff now. Do you see that as an opportunity for just your average person sitting in the pew? Oh, I, I think so too. I think um, even more, it's, it's a huge opportunity for the church to re- consider what does it mean to be church and we're both the church gathered but we also have historically always been the church scattered so i'll I'll just give you one other analogy from history you know you think about uh, monastic communities like the franciscans or the benedictines or uh the dominicans they almost all of them started in a in a monastic cloistered community one monastic community did not start cloistered it was the jesuits they started with a common rule which meant a kind of set of prayer practices and commitments they made to each other. And then they were, their reason for being was to be missionaries. So the literally their imagery of their seal is one of a, of a person with one foot off the ground, which meant that at any given moment, the spirit of God could send you anywhere in the world. Well, you would go, this is back in the 1500s, which meant that if you were sent to China uh, from Spain, you may never see your brothers ever again but you're still part of a monastic community. So to ask ourselves a question, what, what holds us together? What binds us? What are the practices? What are the commitments? What are the, the vows we take to each other and the covenants we make that make us more than just where we show up on a Sunday morning to get fed or to get, to get resources? That reestablishes the church as a covenantal community rather than um, some kind of religious service vendor or uh, of some kind. Yeah, I think that you're going to have kind of those competing, I mean, you always have those competing tendencies or those competing pulls. I mean, because this could actually, in some ways, accelerate uh, a kind of a passive consumerism, right? That, that not, and I'm not, this is not a rag on churches that are big or are well-equipped to do multimedia ministry in, in any ways. Um, but that, like, th- those are the, the people who can produce the best show, um, you know, does that just attract the most eyeballs or does that kind of, does that contribute to basically this great, this great sort that we see even in the church in this country where it's like the big get bigger and the small get smaller and they're sort of, you know, never the twain shall meet. There's not the sort of, um, you know, two I forget, you know, the 250 person community or whatever that size is. I remember from that book, uh, one of those Malcolm Gladwell books where he talked about, I think it was DuPont or something, or one of those companies organized their departments into groups of a certain size, because beyond that, you had to like, they couldn't function as like a, a kind of a community in and of themselves. And so you had to replace, um, you had to replace networks of relationships with policies and procedures and rules and regulations and stuff. And so, you know, that's one thing that I'm um, interested in seeing what happens. And, and um, my great hope is that the, you know, and my job as a leader is to, um, yeah, is to be a pastor to my people and equip them in this time. And, um, and the, challenge or temptation is maybe to despair or towards just well if who he who has the best show 
you know, wins at the end of the day. Um, well, well, think about this. If, if we go back to our, you know, core values, Christianity is a set of beliefs. I, the, the apostles. <laughs> yeah. I believe in God, the father, almighty maker of heaven and yeah. earth. <laughs> yeah. So there is something that you vow, something that you believe, something you ascend, but it's also a commitment to a mission. Like the, the, somebody of Austin said that the one thing that's not in the apostles creed is any discussion of mission because the apostles creed is what they took on mission, mm-hmm. right? To participate in re- recognizing we, our job is to make disciples so making disciples of Jesus Christ means to make people who become committed followers of Jesus, who are going to be lifetime learners. We're going to be people who embody your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Where, and that's wherever we happen to be in whatever setting, wherever we go, we make disciples. And our disciples are people who share a set of beliefs and a set of practices. So the church is now going to become more a group of people who are going to ask yourselves the question, what are our core beliefs and what are our core practices and why do we exist? And those questions, what do we believe? What do we do? Why do we exist? Are going to take us right back to the central, um, uh, central kind of core conviction. And that core conviction is what's going to, what we need to take into a future. And that's going to be a moment where, I mean, this, this moment has not happened in the church in maybe centuries. And so now there's a moment for us to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be church? Now, um, was there ever a temptation on Lewis and Clark's behalf, like to quit or was there ever like a mutiny where people were like, well, you're like, we signed up for this and now you're telling us to do that. Like what, like, I'm just curious as to what, how that happened with them and what that might teach us about now. Well, so it's interesting. So they were a military unit. Right. So you got to realize they were a military unit. So when they first started out of St. Louis, they had typical military issues. They had people like, you know, who broke curfew and people who made who broke the laws and stuff. And they had to use military discipline. And it was pretty they had to be pretty severe in kind of the way that a military unit would be. By the time they went went 18 months upstream, spent a long winter with the Mandan tribe and got to the Lemhi Pass, they'd already dealt with a couple of uh, insubordinations, a person who that they, somebody that they had to discipline, someone they had to send back with another unit. They dealt with those things. But by the time they got there, they stepped over the Lemhi Pass and they really began to function differently. They were much more of a community. They were still a military unit. But by the time they got to the Pacific Ocean, when they decided where they were going to establish the United States of America and the New World, like here in the, on the beachfront of Oregon, they did it by taking a vote and they took a vote of everyone, including Sacagawea and including York, an African-American slave. So at least for this shining moment in American history, a hundred years before the rest of America showed up, they functioned like the future. And I believe that one of the opportunities we have in the church today as people who believe that we serve the God of the future, the God who tells us that a day will come, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If we believe those things, then we, as we start stepping into uncharted territory, we can now ask ourselves the question, how do we embody the future in a way that the world could look to? And this gives us a great opportunity. And it's really important. But, but to be clear, there's loss that's going to come with that. If you came on the expedition because you're an expert water navigator, and all of a sudden you get to the top of the Lemhi Pass and you realize there are 300 miles of mountains 
and there is no river to be seen, then what you have to realize is you're going to have to drop the canoe and your own identity is going to come under, under uh, a crisis. And that's exactly what happened. They had to actually dr drop their canoes. They had to collaborate with Sacagawea to get to the Shoshone to get horses. The Shoshone helped them get through the mountains until they got to the Columbia River on the other side and they could build more canoes and get back in the water again. And it's a dramatic moment for us to think about the same thing. What's going to take us through this moment and what's going to make us different when we get all the way through. Mm -hmm. What a shift of, uh, of identities. Like, I mean, I, obviously that's why you chose this. This is a great analogy. Uh, you're a, we're canoeing. Well, you, there are no canoes. You, <laughs> everything <laughs> is done. Everything that you knew before is done. What now shall we do? I mean, that is amazing. And, uh, and are, are we at that moment? I mean, who knows? Like every day is changing, but that is a fantastic thing to think about. What if everything yeah. about who you are is, is different in some way and you have to, you know, go back to your foundations of what you are in Christ. And that is, that is terrifying, but also very clarifying as well. So I, I would put it this way, which is when, when I think about this and when I work with other organizations and I work with, and I'm, and I'm leading adaptive change. I do think this is a good metaphor because I think what's happening right now is we're facing the Rocky Mountains. It's something we couldn't even imagine. So remember, these are guys all from the East Coast. When they heard mountains, the Mandan tribe told them there were mountains. And they went, oh, yeah, we're good at mountains. Like the Appalachian Mountains, right? <laughs> right. Like the Canadoa Mountains. They had no mental model of what was coming. They were completely unprepared. But they made their way through. And a day came when they got to get into the rafts again. And what I would say is they got into the rafts as different people than they were when they got out. Because now they'd experienced the Shoshone tribe as friends. They'd, they'd experienced their need for help. They had been humble. They'd been stretched. Um, they barely made it through. They had 60 miles of hip deep snow. They had 300 miles of, of crossing mountains. When they got back into canoes, they were different people. And I have a hunch that the day's going to come. The church is going to gather again. We're going to have but I think we might gather as a different kind of people than we were before. And that it'll, and that now we're going to know we have a different kind of capacity that is much more about our mission than it is about our economic or institutional survival. And if there's anything I hope that we can learn to lose uh, with our canoes is it is our tendency to think that institutional survival is the same thing as the gospel going forth in the mission of the people of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very very uh, good word for the people, an encouraging word, and and I think always you know, reformation and ref, yeah you know um, and recovery revival in the church, it's always been a return to first principles or you know right like, like this was the watchword of the Reformation was ad fontes. Let's go back to these sources. Let's recover these sources. Let's go back to the New Testament and get a new understanding of them. Let's go back and reread the fathers. Um, and 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 so uh, you know these moments that, that uh, are of crisis also force, or they force us to go back to, um, you know, to go back to these first principles and relearn again, what we thought we knew already, um, you know, like for the first time. And so they, they, it really forces us to, I mean, it forces us to go back to school. Um, and, and that's a good thing kind of, cause you can get on autopilot for a long time and, and you can sort of manage a, uh, manage stasis or even manage a slow decline like for a long 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 time 
um, in my mind, it seems like. And so this is maybe the sort of uh, shock, um, shock to the system that the church in the West and the church, uh, particularly in America and in, you know, uh, white middle class or upper middle class America needed, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's an interesting <laughs> moment. Yeah. yeah, for sure. There's oh, a, God. Uh, I, I oh, wonder yeah, if Mike. you're aware of the, I'm sure you've both heard this, the quote, I think it's uh, Prime Minister uh, is it McMillan, Harold McMillan, who when he was voted in and they said, what, do you, what is going to shape your, you know, your government, what is going to guide you? And he said, Famously, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> We're stuck with what we have. And so, you, you know, whatever your plans are, events, dear boy, events. And I think mm-hmm. that's a great lesson for now. Like, here we are. Oh, yeah. Yep. Or as, uh, you know, I've said this before, but as Mike Tyson said, that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the, right. <laughs> until they get punched in the face. Right. <laughs> you know, and so here's a big punch. Uh, you know, here's a big punch to the face for churches and leaders across this country. Um, you know, and I think too, you know, you read in seminary, you read about, you know, the great crises of, you know, there was the great war and how that was such a, you know, crisis in European Christianity, um, which I never thought of how actually maybe the pandemic even played into that great crisis. Uh, you know, the, the flu pandemic in terms of, you know, yes, the, the killing fields of Europe were absolutely brutal, but like way more people were young people died of a pandemic flu than even died in the war in that time. And, and so like those were sort of for the history books and it sort of felt like that Francis Fukuyama, like the end of history, you know, the church existing in the end of history where everything's just sort of kind of going to continue to go on as always was. And it's a naive perspective um, for sure. But, but that sense of urgency or a sense of crisis beyond just, I guess, diminishing budgets or diminishing attendance, but, but truly like a throwing everything into question or, or just how we practice our, um, how we practice as church together and be church together, um, to, to be forced to reckon with that and everyone all at the same time is a pretty astounding, is a pretty astounding moment. And, you know, we're, uh, one week in, in most of the United States, we're, a week and a half into it. And so I think it's also, you know, when you talk about the length of the journey, like that, how long were they, how long were they gone for on the expedition? Three years, three years. Yeah. Yeah. It was a three year journey that, and by the time, uh, because they thought it was going to be shorter, everybody thought they'd be back in maybe two. Um, a lot of folks back at home had given up on them and assumed they were dead. And so there's one of the parts I keep talking about, about adaptive changes um, adaptive change will be the work of the church for the next generation, at least. Mm-hmm. It'll be the work of my generation, probably the, those who are like in their 30s and then beyond. Like it's mm-hmm. going to be a long, um, if Christendom lasted, you know, something like, oh, 1700 years, we're now 10 minutes into post-Christendom and we're now a week and a half into a pandemic. Yeah. It's opposed to Christendom. It's going to be a long, long learn. So we're in it for the long haul. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Mike, do you have any other questions? Well, I just want to, maybe as a final thing, what, what do you think were the, what were the top uh, traits that they had as sort of leaders and changers? How, how were they able to cope with it? What gave them that? Um, Did it come from, you know, you, you mentioned their, their uh, shared enlightenment values. Was there a religious value that, I mean, we all we can argue forever about Jefferson's religious values, but uh, 
what what was their source? How did they do it? What, from what uh, notebook were they were they getting this leadership from? That would be my final question. Well, it's interesting, Mike, because I, I think this is a this is always a hard conversation for us as Christians. I, I don't think that, as far as I can tell, there was anything predominantly Christian about them. They were, okay. but I do think there was some some a very different, very particular Christian practice that they didn't even probably realize. Um, one of the things I often say is Lewis and Clark. Um, Stephen Ambrose pointed out are known as Lewis and Clark. They are known for their partnership. You separate their names. You can be in Lewiston, Idaho and not know it was named after Meriwether Lewis. You can be in Clark County, Kentucky, which is where the Presbyterian Church's you know, you know, mothership is in Louisville and not know it was named after William Clark. But together, Lewis and Clark created a kind of partnership that was unique. It was unique in military history. It was unique at that time. Um, it actually, Congress said they didn't want them to function as a partnership. And Meriwether Lewis said, we're going to do it anyway. Um, and the men are never going to know that they didn't give William Clark a full captain's commission um, because we're going to be partners. And what's interesting is we do have a place in history where we can find that kind of partnership. And it's called the New Testament. Um, when you see together the names of Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Barnabas and Mark, Priscilla and Aquila, you start seeing that we have partnerships that are really important. And that partnership and that collaborative approach, I think, is one of the ways that we can come back as a church and say, we are at our best when we are being the body of Christ in partnership and mission together, and we are living out our core values of our faith. Oh, that's a great answer. Oh. Can, I, can I offer one resource for folks who'd want to study this more? Heck um, Yeah. Yeah, you can, obviously, I'd be thrilled for anybody to get the book. Um, We actually have a resource that we have built at Fuller uh, for groups and for teams to be able to go through it together. And you can get it pretty simply. You just send a text, and everybody can do that these days. You send a text uh, that texts the word canoeing, C-A-N-O-C-A-N-O-E-I-N-G, canoeing, C-O-N-C-A-N-O-E-I-N-G, canoeing to 66866. Uh, too many sixes in a row. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, I'm glad you. I'm glad you broke up the sixes, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Six six eight six six. Then the word canoeing. You'll get a whole bunch of uh, uh, slides, PowerPoint slides that have a bunch of these points and stuff I do when I do speaking. And there's a free resource that you can get that is uh, on our Fuller Leadership platform that is filled with resources that are all free until July 1st as we go through this COVID, this COVID experience. That's awesome. And, and, you know, Mike and I, we don't like to brag, but um, so we had, we interviewed um, a while back, one of my professors from Princeton Seminary, a philosophy prof, and he wrote this book called Evil and Christian Ethics, which was like four millionth on Amazon. And he got the bump to like 3,200,000. Well, um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> we moved him 800,000 spaces. Um, and so, you know, we are, we, we can move markets. We're like, uh, we're like Oprah's book club here on like trees walking. (laughs) So uh, no, but Todd, I just appreciate so much you giving us the time, um, right now. It is very helpful for me, uh, you know, personally as a, as a pastor and, um, as a Christian, just thinking about, well, what do we do now? And, and I know it's going to be really helpful and encouraging and and thought provoking for um, our audience too. So I am, I am, I am just thrilled that we got to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been fun to be with you. For sure. Thank you so much, Donna.